0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me you know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it. An offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why, so simple. When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's the lion! Step out of it! If call me Mr. Boy's best friend, Mother. You have no style. You're going to bark all day, little dog. No. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week, as you may or may not be able to tell. My voice is a little bit hoarse this week. I'm pretty sure it's because I started my week off this week by being on set again for the first time since COVID started, which was super awesome. As an added bonus, I got to go on a mini road trip out to Joshua Tree with the crew to do that. And as a result, I've been riding that high and sleeping it off all week because traveling is exhausting. For those of you who don't work in entertainment, let me tell you, working on a film or TV set in any capacity is exhausting, but it's also exhilarating and incredible, and if you're working with the right people, the time of your life. There is truly no other feeling in the world like being on a set. I didn't get a chance to visit the cinema this week because I was on set and I'm running massively behind on scripts. And this week was a practice in getting back into working gigs and balancing this podcast, which I, to be honest, only semi-managed to do. It is very hard to sit down and write in the desert while being super paranoid about charging batteries for your kit. So it's definitely a work in progress over here for me for that. So, since we don't have that, we're going to go right into this week's topic. This week, we cover a film that isn't something you would necessarily think of as a cult classic, especially when compared to the first two films we covered this month. And that's mostly because of the way that this film achieved cult status. This week, we're covering the making of and cult classic status of the film The Craft. The thing that sets this film apart from Rocky Horror or The Room is that The Craft got a cult film following not from midnight screenings at arthouse theaters, but through the power of home video and teenage sleepovers. This week was actually the first time I think I've seen this film in its entirety, but it's been on my radar since I was about 17. My film camp roommate, yes, I went to film camp, was pretty much the poster child for someone who would be obsessed with this movie, and she definitely talked about it a lot, and we may have watched it. If we did, I definitely fell asleep, and therefore I don't remember it. It's on HBO Max for those of you with, an, with that subscription, FYI. Sometimes when I see movies later in life than recommended, for example, I saw E.T., for the first time at 29, and that was way too late. I don't like them. I gotta say, the craft is pretty okay. It needed about 10 minutes shaved off of it in the edit, but you wouldn't have to pull my arm to watch it again. In fact, I think I'm gonna watch it again tomorrow. It's super duper 90s, and as a child of that era, I am always down for some 1990s nostalgia. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Even if you've never seen the craft, you've probably seen the iconic poster of the four leads mid-stride in their cashed-up school uniforms walking in what looks like a supernatural storm as a spotlight hits them from behind. But how did this film come to be? To find that out, we have to go back to the early 1990s. By the end of that decade, we pretty much had gotten the golden age of movies and television shows about teenagers. This would become the time of Clueless, American Pie, Cruel Intentions, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Scream, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the lighthearted one, not the emo one all the kids liked. But the making of this film started before any of those existed. The origins of the craft began before this world in a meeting between screenwriter Peter Filardi and producer Doug Wick in the early 90s. The two had recently seen the film Flatliners, a film about a group of medical students testing the boundaries between life and death. Inspired by that film, the two wanted to brainstorm a potential project that dealt with teenage witches. Wick wanted the film also to focus around female empowerment, so naturally he hired another dude to write a script about that cause 90s, and thought of film using witchcraft as a metaphor for that was the way to go. This was hardly new territory, mind you, as witchcraft and the like has served this storytelling trope for tales of independent women or the feminine mystique when it comes to the natural world for generations. The duo spent hours talking about mushrooms, ecstasy, and the history of magic. Wick told Filardi about how witchcraft had almost always been a practice of the oppressed, the outcasts of society. From that they established that the characters of this potential film could not be popular, but rather outsiders with more than just basic desires. Real magic requires need, after all. After multiple brainstorm sessions, Filardi got to work on the script. Wick described the early versions of the script saying, quote, It was always about the incredible longing of high school, the fears of high school, and what would you do if you were empowered? What would go right and what would go wrong? And what would be unexpected? The script evolved, got pretty good, and the studio was interested. That studio was Sony Pictures, whom would release the film through Columbia Pictures, which they had acquired in 1989. But this was a weird movie for Sony, or really any Hollywood studio. At this point in the early 90s, the young adult genre was still considered pretty niche, and a film that focused on four female leads? Forget about it. They could sell a male-led film, but a female one? Who could say? The closest thing they could compare it to was Heathers, and that film had come out eight years prior and had bombed at the box office. Not the best thing to base a film that you want to have make money on. Follardi's finished script eventually made its way to writer-director Andy Fleming, whom liked the premise and began work on his own version. Wick soon chose Fleming as director, and he was brought on board. Both Villardi and Fleming would receive credit for the screenplay, but Fleming would be the one who had the most direct hand in the version that ended up on screen. At that time, Fleming had just directed a character-driven horror film called Threesome, which both Wick and Filardi had enjoyed. They thought he would be the perfect addition to the growing team because of his treatment of characters in previous works. Most importantly, Fleming understood the girls that Filarty had created, and both he and Wick believed Fleming wouldn't make the film hokey like Hocus Pocus, which had come out around this time. Fleming took over the screenwriting job from Filarty and added some of the more unique touches to the script. For example, he made Rochelle black to explore issues of race, he added the plot point that Sarah had attempted suicide, and that Bonnie had been badly burned, though I don't believe it's ever explained why. The latter two, Fleming added, because of his personal experiences in college, both were based on women in his dorm hall. To ensure the witchcraft in the film wasn't of the Hocus Pocus variety, Fleming did a lot of research about paganism in order to show it on screen more realistically than had been done thus far. The production also hired an actual Wiccan as a consultant, though so this was done for later in the production, not necessarily for the script. She would also co-write the chants and incantations with Fleming for the film. They wanted everything to be unique to the world of the film as to not anger or frustrate real Wiccans, but that a Wiccan would recognize as a version of their own religion. Fleming also created the deity Mana, whom the girls worship, so impressionable young women who saw the movie wouldn't end up actually praying to a real deity. Hilariously, Mana would mistakenly appear in some less well researched witchcraft books for years after the film released. Casting was, according to Fleming, incredibly difficult. Films with one strong female protagonist, let alone four, weren't common at all, which meant that they were dealing with a bunch of relative newcomers to the industry, which can slow things down at pretty much every juncture. The other issue, of course, is that this was a young adult film before the genre existed, so no one really knew what to do with this film, even in pre-production. There were no big names that were going to be in the film, because the teen stars of that day, were largely too big to appear in this film. This lack of initial star power can be a hard sell for some other talent to join a project. Nobody wants to work on something nobody is going to see if they can help it. Wick and Fleming were truly in uncharted waters. Scores of young women were screen-tested for the roles, many of whom, according to casting director for The Craft Pam Dixon, became very famous later on. This included Angelina Jolie, who was actually on hold for Sarah until she booked another film project, Scarlett Johansson, whom was just 12 at the time, and a pre-clueless Alicia Silverstone. Casting took nine months altogether, which is quite a bit longer than average for a film of this size, and the filmmakers stated that they saw nearly every girl in the age group in Hollywood at the time for the movie. The first of the girls to be cast was Rachel True, whom played Rochelle, followed by Ruza Balk, who played Nancy, whom even bought in a cult shop after falling in love with the shop while doing research. Originally, Robin Tunney, whom plays protagonist Sarah, was cast to play the part that would eventually go to Nev Campbell, whom played Bonnie, the one that's been badly burned. Robin had been hired to read for other actors who auditioned, only to clench a role for herself. When the four girls finally screen tested together, which included a shot of them quite similar to what the poster would eventually be, Sony was finally sold on the project enough to give the green lights, the craft was going to be a motion picture. I drink of my sisters, and I ask for the ability to not hate those who hate me, especially racist pieces of bleach blonde shit like Laura Lizzie. (laughs) Right (sighs) up. I drink of my sisters, and I ask to love myself more and to allow myself to be loved more by others. Especially Chris (laughs) Tucker. I know, it's pathetic. (laughs) It's definitely pathetic. (laughs) I drink of my sisters, and I take into myself the power to be beautiful outside as well as in. Hmm. I drink of my sisters, and I take into myself all the power of Manon. That's all? Since about 50% of you are not whom this film was meant for at any point of your in your lives, I'm going to go ahead and give a quick synopsis for this film. The Craft tells the story of Sarah Bailey, who moves to Los Angeles with her father and stepmother after she attempts suicide. She struggles to find a place for herself in her new Catholic high school before falling in with three fellow outsiders who believe she's the natural witch meant to complete their coven, Bonnie, Rochelle, and Nancy. Each girl has their own reasons, for their fascinations with magic, wanting it to free them from the issues of adolescence, whether it be racism, poverty, physical scars, or emotional wounds they've yet to heal from. At first, their union is a harmonious one, as the young coven learn how to use their new powers for their bidding, until Nancy's quest for power gets out of control, warping the sisterly bonds they once shared. Each girl was loosely assigned one of the four elements to guide their character's journey throughout the film. Sarah was Earth, Bonnie Wind, Rochelle Water, and of course Nancy Fire. The first day of shooting included the scene where the girls first meet each other and Sarah, the lead character, isn't in her school uniform, which was a part of the script. Seeing this, the studio heads apparently freaked out and almost fired the costume designer on the spot until she showed them future outfits for the film that proved that she was, in fact, not bad at her job. Non-creative executives, as a rule, dear listeners, are almost never right in matters of creative choices. Robin Tunney, who plays Sarah, had recently shaved her head for Empire Records, and by the time production had started, it had grown back to a short pixie cut, but the studio didn't want that, and she was fitted for a wig. If you've seen the film and you've ever wondered why her hair looked weird in this movie, which I did the whole time, especially when she goes blonde, that's why. It's not some, like, cheap budget corner-cutting thing they did. It's just a wig. It's a really funky-looking wig. To get a more gothic feel for the film, Fleming opted to use old 40s architecture wherever possible. He liked that decayed feeling the buildings had, and it certainly adds to the overall look at the film. Visual effects were much more expensive in the mid-90s than they are now, but lucky for the filmmakers on the craft, Sony Imageworks was at the center of the cutting edge of effects work. They ended up creating proprietary software to do several of the film's more difficult scenes, like when the swarm of butterflies surround the girls. One thing that was not visual effects were the snakes and bugs and spiders and creepy crawlies of all manner in the film. Those were all real, except for the ones Nancy's hair turns into in the climax for obvious reasons. At one point during the production, there were about 10,000 snakes on set, which were kept in giant buckets, which I'm pretty sure you can't do anymore. Like many supernatural films that came before, the cast and crew reported strange things happening on set during production. For example, during the ritual scene on the beach. Feiruza Balk, aka Nancy, had apparently heard from a witch that the beach, quote, didn't like pagan ceremonies. Balk got sick before filming, and when they came back to the beach to shoot the scene, the lights went out and the altar was washed away by a rogue wave. Quote, It was strange because when we would get into the invocation, the surf came higher and then it would go down when we stopped, recalled Fleming. A park ranger that told them basically where they would be safe to shoot was completely baffled that the waves kept coming up and trying to wash away the altar. Every time that happened, it would take hours to reset the scene. According to Nev Campbell, a.k.a. Bonnie, a white owl was seen following the production as well in multiple locations. Despite all the eerie occurrences on the set, the film was finished and was slated for an early May 1996 release. Hail to the guardians of the watchtowers of the East, the powers of air and invention. Hear me! Us, hear us. Hail to the guardians of the watchtowers of the South, powers of fire and feeling. Hear us! Hail to the guardians of the watchtowers of the West, powers of water and intuition, hear us. Hail to the guardians of the watchtowers of the North by the powers of Mother and Earth, hear us. Aid us in our magical working on this May's Eve. Serpent of old, ruler of deep, Guardian of the bitter sea. Show us your glory. Show us your power. We pray of thee. We pray of thee. We invoke. There are a lot of reasons a film may not make waves with an audience during its initial run. It may have been marketed in a way that didn't attract the right audience, critical reviews may have been tepid or terrible, or the MPAA rating might exclude people that the film was made for. In the case of The Craft, it was kind of a combination of all three. The MPAA, the association responsible for rating films in the U.S., gave The Craft an R rating, despite there not being typical R-rated content within the film. Now the problem with the MPAA, and it's been a problem forever, is that the criteria for how a film is rated is more or less secret, which can make it difficult on filmmakers making a movie in a genre that doesn't exist yet. There are a couple of things that are basically known, like one F word is allowed in a PG-13 film, if there's two it's immediately rated R, and you can't show blood spurting unless you want your film rated R, but as far as the thinking behind final rulings go, the MPAA doesn't give studios or filmmakers super in-depth reasons for that final rating. Fleming surmises that the craft got landed with an R rating because of the paganism and rituals, which were still pretty snafu at the time, and the fact that he believed that the people whom made that judgment were all white dudes. That's the other thing. No one knows who the MPAA members are to prevent bribery and the like. While the satanic panic of the 1980s in the United States may have been more or less in the rearview mirror, the MPAA was still staunchly set on an R rating because witches. In fact, they had informed the filmmakers after merely reading the script that no matter what they did, the film would be rated R. This was a problem, as the film was geared toward high school-aged girls who now couldn't see this film without a parent or guardian. The filmmakers had gone so far out of their way to try and procure a PG-13 rating, they avoided swearing and nudity in the hopes of doing so, which was all for naught. Wick compared getting slapped with that R rating as, quote, "...the modern-day equivalent of having a few witches burned at the stake." Rachel True, whom played Rochelle, really got screwed over when it came to pretty much every aspect of production other than landing the job. As the only Black member of the coven, and the cast, coupled with the times the film was made in, meant that she was pretty much told to shut up, smile, and be glad she was in a major studio film to begin with. Things started getting screwy for her shortly after the table read when her character's parents were cut from the script. You may or may not have noticed watching the film that she's the only one of the four whose home life you never see. Her whole character thing is racism, and it doesn't get any more nuanced than that. Then came the press junkets, which True was not invited to at first. Marketing didn't think the film would attract black people, so they didn't bother to have her promote the film or include her in many of the promotional images, despite the fact that it's about four girls, not three. She was eventually added to the junkets after one of the other girls voiced a complaint about it, but there were still several events she was left out of, including the MTV Movie Awards, where the film was nominated for several awards. The Craft released in theaters on May 6, 1996, after a splashy premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. The film was met with mediocre reviews from critics, including Roger Ebert, who complained that the film had too many visual effects. If only he could see movies now, and if he can, he's definitely doing backflips in his grave. Unsurprisingly, the film's harshest critics were primarily male. The film made an okay $55.6 million at the box office against a budget of about $15 million. As a general rule of thumb, a film is considered to have broken even if it makes three times its budget, which it did, but it certainly wasn't the huge hit Sony had been hoping for. In their contracts, the four leads had been given the opportunity to appear in sequels, none of which ever came to fruition. Fleming had even written a sequel and a television pilot, neither of which went anywhere. The Craft did open the door for a slew of women-led franchises and shows, including the pretty blatant ripoff Charmed, which even used a song from The Craft as its theme song. Fleming would later claim that the pilot he wrote for the Craft TV spinoff was stolen to create Charmed. The craft is also probably the reason the goth fashion came into mainstream prevalence, so Hot Topic is the booming business it is today, most likely thanks to the craft. While the film may not have blown the box office out of the water, the home rentals were astronomical according to the filmmakers. I couldn't find a solid number of what that was, but this film gained its cult status in living rooms through home video instead of at the movie theater. Whether it was by renting the film at the neighborhood video store or passing the film around from house to house, The Craft eventually found its audience and fervent following. In the years following its release to this very day, The Craft has become a crucial film for young women because it teaches them that you can be your weird, wonderful outcast self as long as you are kind to yourself and others. It teaches you that you don't need to change your outer appearance in any manner to please anyone, you don't need to have approval from men, The girls in this film are strong and self-sufficient just as they are, which was not seen at this time in film. The craft made it okay to be an outsider and to embrace the things that made young girls different from their cohorts. This is in part why the film has the cult status it does today. It speaks to the weird girl in every high school. On October 28th, 2013, the group, Minus Feiruza Balk, reunited at Cinespia, which for those of you not in Los Angeles, is a company that does film screenings around LA, most notably at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. If you're ever in LA, I highly recommend it. It's super duper fun. Later, a reunion of all four occurred in 2019 at a series of conventions. In 2020, a not-quite-sequel, not-quite-remake for the film was released called The Craft Legacy. While the film featured a surprise cameo from a member of the original Coven, the film failed critically financially, COVID had a big part in this also, and very few fans of the 96 film enjoyed the new one. While the film was supposed to set up a more direct sequel to the 1996 film, it looks like it'll be a long time before the four girls are united on screen once more. The craft has provided young girls with a film to embrace their inner rebel for 25 years, giving them a glimpse of what a strong woman can look like in an era where most women were treated as props for their male character counterparts. While the film didn't find an audience right away in its day, its popularity has only grown in the last three decades. It's a film for the girls who aren't cheerleaders or athletes, but for the girls who'd rather crank up an indie band, wear dark clothes, and dig through some dusty neglected books in the back of the library. in search of something beyond their regular lives. Andrew Fleming put it best when he said, quote, the craft was special to all of us. I'd like to think we made magic. Look at this. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that'd be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out, the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the making and cult classic status of the film Donnie Darko. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.